brought to you by Pabst Blue Ribbon. Gold medal winner at the 2016 Great American Beer Festival. When you're this good, quality always comes through. PBR Me ASAP. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's twins. It's a beautiful game, now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Hey guys, welcome to the Touch Em All podcast. Another episode here, about halfway through spring training, and I'm Phil Mackey, sitting in lovely downtown Minneapolis, where it feels like spring. A little bit windy today, which would be bad if Delman Young was your left fielder uh, at Target Field. We've seen that before. And Derek Wetmore on, what is it, like day 30 in Fort Myers for you? As we reach the halfway point, the World Baseball Classic is about to fire up, and uh, meaningful games have been going on for a couple weeks down there. Meaningful in quotation marks, but games have definitely been going on for a couple of weeks. I, down. I meant meaningless, and I said meaningful. Uh, so, okay. so we're a minute in, and I've and I've already lost my grasp on the English language. Which yeah, is I'd not say surprising. we're about we're about on pace. Then I'd say. <laughs> so I want to bring let's let's start with this because I just got back from Fort Myers. This is our first full podcast since I arrived back from Fort Myers. And I want to bring something really geeky and nerdy to the attention of our of our loyal listeners that sort of shines a light on conversations that are happening behind the scenes and things that might be changing with the Twins process that you might not see on the field right away, that you might not see, obviously, in their, in their free agent spending. And it's probably something that you have – you might even be able to expand on this more just because you've been around these guys – have you ever heard twins pitchers and coaches talk more about the intricacies of RPM and spin rate and uh, and and almost treat pitching like professional golfers treat TrackMan for 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 golf statistics? Hmm. Uh, this is the spring in which I've had more conversations than ever, and part of that, I'll be fully honest, is because. I'm just learning this stuff. I didn't like if you would have told me a year ago to give you the average spin rate on a big league fastball and why you might want to be well above average or how it could be to your benefit to be well below average. I would have mostly just been fudging with my answer. And that's partly on me, but also partly because StatCast data is so new. Like we've had trackmen in the minor leagues for a while now, yeah. but now that StatCast and things like exit velocity and launch angle and barreling fast or uh, barreling balls on on hits, uh, then now that this stuff is kind of becoming more in vogue, I personally am learning more about it. And I think we as baseball viewers and observers are learning more about it too. So. Yes, it's. I've, yes, I've talked more about it this spring in a nerdy way, but yeah. that's not necessarily on the Twins. It's kind of on my lack of knowledge dating back to you know two years ago. Sure. So okay, yes, and I agree that it's among among you and I, for instance, the the geeky baseball writers and media members. Then this is this is all very new because MLB just added 
I think they purchased BaseballSavant.com. I believe Baseball Savant was created independently, and now it's BaseballSavant.MLB.com where you can find a lot of this information. So anytime information or statistics become available to the public for the first time, pitch framing, for instance, in the last couple of years, it just becomes a more prominent part of the conversation. It doesn't mean that teams haven't been using these measurements behind the scenes for a long time. But Ryan Presley, for instance... This is something interesting that I learned uh, in my time down there. Ryan Presley has the best spin rate slash RPM on his fastball and also on his curveball. And so some people might be wondering, well, what does that mean? It means, in in essence, he has some of the best stuff on the team, if not the best stuff among any Twins pitcher, and he might not have been using that stuff in the right way. Um, Glenn Perkins was talking about this a lot down in spring training. Trevor May was even, even Ryan Presley and Latroy Hawkins, who you might think to be oh, old school, you know, comes from the, the mid to late nineties, probably didn't really get into sabermetrics. And he's sort of all in on studying why pitchers have success. And he's trying to implement, uh, some of those teachings with, with, uh, with the pitchers at spring training. So in general, if you have a high spin fastball, you want to aim or you want to at least work up in the zone more often than not, and I'll explain why in a second, and then we can elaborate on this. If you have yeah. a low, if you have a low spin fastball, you want to operate down in the zone because if you have a high spin fastball, the ball fights gravity a little bit longer than if you have a low or an average spin fastball. So if and you can find some of these these moving gifs on on the internet, YouTube, wherever, where it'll show high spin, average spin, and low spin. And oftentimes velocity will correlate with high spin fastballs, but there's guys who throw 94 like Mike Pelfrey who have a low spin fastball, and that's what we call a heavy fastball that drops a little bit quicker. It's just an ever so slight difference, but if you throw a high spin fastball at the same time as a pitcher throws an average spin fastball, your high spin fastball, even at the same velocity, will stay up on a plane a little bit longer, thus hitters will pop that pitch up more often or just swing and miss altogether. Um, and I just feel like the Twins having these conversations behind the scenes, it's the first time that I can ever remember this stuff coming up on a regular basis. And I think it probably goes to show you Derek Falvey coming in with some of his philosophies from Cleveland and getting some of these guys to talk about these things, Derek. Yeah, for sure. They're empowering people more to talk about these things. It's like if they were talked about in the past, I'm not saying I'm not saying that anyone would like put the clamps down, but you'd be kind of like speaking out of church a little bit. If you're like, hey, these are my philosophies and they didn't line up with either your coaching staff or the front office or whatever. Now it's like they're very encouraged to discuss not just not just spin rate, but like any idea. Let's say you have the idea that like Pitchers need to drink uh, 12 gallons of Corona before uh, before going out on the mound, and like you've got data to prove it. Well, you can talk about it. That one's probably a bad example because I'm not sure you'd survive that. I think David it. Wells actually did that before he threw a perfect game against the Twins in the 90s. I think that actually happened. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but anyway, like you just, you're empowered now to talk about any idea. Like things are, things are being more openly discussed. I'll add a couple of pictures to that. Um, Craig Breslow was signed by and large because of his understanding of this. Like he reinvented his delivery. And I think without that reinvention, he probably doesn't have a lot of interest this year. You can talk all you want about leadership and intelligence and uh, maybe playing some behind the scenes role, some intangible benefit. But if, 
there were 30 major league teams who felt that way about Breslow, he would have had a job last summer. He got DFA'd by the Marlins and couldn't find work or didn't find work. I don't know the full story there, but then he reinvents himself. He knows that it's been a bad couple of years for him in the big leagues. He reinvented himself using some of these tracking things, not just spin rate, but also uh, watching what his what his mechanics, what his biomechanics in his pitching motion do to his actual pitch, how it impacts his fastball and stuff like that. So he dropped down uh, lower arm slot. You've probably heard the story by now. It's nothing novel. But what is novel is that he used this stuff to change what he's doing. Glenn Perkins did that years ago. Um, and he was kind of like the narc who, you know, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but he was sort of like the the guy off in the corner by himself paying attention to this track man stuff. And now guys like Ryan O'Rourke is using it. He's he's worked with it this winter and will continue to do so throughout the season. I think it's kind of the next wave of baseball. Um, but I also do want to clarify one thing based on my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, high spin doesn't necessarily mean good fastball. You can have a high spin fastball, not know how to use it, and have it have no break, like it's just a straight fastball. Uh, great. If it's 95 and straight, they're going to hit it a long way. Conversely, you can have a pretty low spin fastball, and if you know how to use that and you're dealing down in the zone – and guys, and it changes their eye level. There's something the Twins have talked a lot about this spring with Neil Allen, uh, making hitters uncomfortable, changing their eye level, which is nothing new. Changing speed and changing eye level dates back to, like, Cyclone Young, I'm sure. Um, but the idea that knowing how to use your stuff yes, in, cor- in correlation with the understanding of what your stuff is exactly doing I think that's what constitutes a good pitch and not to make a long-winded point even longer, but just for example, somebody like Trevor May, who has a relatively high spin fastball compared to average. If you're a hitter and you're used to seeing this path of a fastball and that's kind of like burned in your brain, you like, you know, you just know what an average fastball looks like coming in. You're used to seeing it. You've seen it so many times. And then there's a fastball that doesn't follow that path. It stays up for a little bit longer. Well, suddenly your muscle memory was swinging to this one certain spot. The fastball surprised you by being a little bit higher than what your what your hand-eye coordination was expecting. Yes. Maybe maybe it's a subconscious level. I don't know. Um, it seems like it'd be awfully quick for conscious thought, but that's that's probably another podcast for another category. But. Anyways, to have a high spin rate fastball and then use it up in the zone where guys are going to be surprised that it didn't break down as much as a typical fastball would, that's when you're really leveraging the most of your advantage. And the exact opposite is true of a low spin guy who, if he can work down in the zone and make it break even more than a hitter is used to, well, that's probably going to produce an awful lot of either swings and misses or, worst case scenario, ground balls. Yeah, I think think you nailed it in that if I, if I could take this even a step further into the into the geek dome, I think we've gone all in on on this uh, geeky pitching conversation. But it's only geeks left listening to this <laughs> podcast. Right. Like I would say feel safe to go tread in this water. Right. Something like 80% of major league pitchers are between a really narrow range of fastball spin rate. Between okay. like... Between like two thousand and twenty two fifty RPM, the top spin rate uh, fastball pitchers, the Justin Verlanders, for instance, the Kenley Jansons, 
Max Scherzer is top five spin rate, are up in the 25 to 2600 RPM rate. And then the lowest of low spin fastball guys are down in that sort of 18, 19, uh, 2000 RPM rate. So that that's kind of the range. If you're in that middle chunk, though, if you're in that the, the 75 to 80% that are in that middle chunk, that right there is what hitters are. That's what you were talking about. That right there is what hitters are trained to react to. A fastball in, in that exact lane with that sort of narrow range of spin rate. So the reason why it's better to have a high spin fastball or a low spin fastball is because unless they're sort of planning ahead, which and this is the meta game, right? This is and I don't know if this is going to be human humanly possible, but but you're going to maybe know that a pitcher has a high spin fastball going into a game or going into a matchup, and thus you're going to have to get on top of the ball a little bit more uh, because the ball doesn't succumb to gravity quite like an average or a low spin fastball. So this is the, this is these are the t- not not to go too deep in the weeds here, but these are the types of conversations that pitchers and hitters are having not only with the twins but with all kinds of other organizations uh up and down minor league and major league baseball yes and it is going to be this is i guess let me make a big picture point which is and we've talked about this before you asked me is Derek falvey the right guy is thad levine the right guy and like in a vacuum the answer that i've given all along is they both seem like really sharp guys. Both seem like they will be good at their job, and I think that they will make the Twins better. Taking that one level further, almost every team in Major League Baseball has a bunch of really smart people working to try to beat the system, beat other teams. They've got medical staff looking at analytics. Big data is impacting sports across the board. And I'm not saying that the Twins have no chance or anything like that, but I'm saying... They're not the only ones playing this game. And now I kind of think they have to sort of catch up to the field a little bit and then try to outcompete them once they get there. It's right. not going to be easy, but I think that they're making the right steps toward that end well, at, here, at the very least. I think that's the most you can say. Sure, and to put a bow on this, this spin rate conversation, the Twins have been known for a long time to tell all of their pitchers, work down in the zone. And you hear the cliche, and Burt Blylevin will say this on the broadcast almost almost every night, ten different times. He left a pitch up. That that that's why that's why uh, said hitter made contact because he left a pitch up. Well, yep. if you're if you're a high spin four seam fastball guy, you should be working up in the zone more often because it's going to lead to more pop ups and more swings and misses. So, I think just to tie it in with your point about Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, Derek Falvey stands a much better chance to implement the correct thinking, which is, hey, not all of you should be working down in the zone. Some of Mm -hmm. you should be working belt high and up in order to get more pop-ups and play to your strengths. Some of you should should absolutely be working from the thighs down with your fastball, but it shouldn't just be a one-style fits-all pitcher's uh, way of forming strategy. Mm -hmm. And that worked for Burt, and I think that's why he uses that. The way I see it is, like, if you're talking about a slider that he left up, well, fine. That means it was a spinner and it didn't break the way you wanted to. But if you're talking about a fastball and you're somebody like Ryan Presley, if you throw a fastball at a guy's eyes and he happens to hit it out, okay, tip your cat because he beat you on your best pitch. But I think it's typecasting and it's it's creating weaknesses that don't need to exist if you use a guy 
with, say, a high spin rate fastball and ask him to work at the knees and down because you're just you're asking for trouble with that recipe. It's kind of the opposite of what I was talking about before. It takes the hitter's expectation and actually plays into his barrel when obviously the object is to get either weak contact or misses bad. Right. Uh, abrupt subject change here, if you're ready for it. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Don't uh, don't swing and miss at my high spin fastball here on this next topic. So you have on 1500ESPN.com and on your Twitter account, and I believe probably on your Facebook account, Derek Wetmore, MLB, you've been speculating about potential Twins lineups. Uh, you were on our radio show last week, and I floated this idea by you. Joe Maurer was so bad against left-handed pitching last year, and he's at an age where that probably – he might regress back to a certain mean, but probably never goes back to dominant Joe Maurer against left-handed pitching. I would bat – High OBP Joe Maurer against right-handers, second or first in the order, maybe even leadoff uh, over that second spot. And I might just sit him against all tough lefties, maybe maybe throw him in there against some of the soft-tossing lefty starters, or drop him down to maybe eighth in the order. So Joe Maurer, where should he be in the lineup? And then from a bigger picture, what does your 2017 Twins lineup look like if you are making the decision? Pabst Blue Ribbon is always smooth, always refreshing, and the perfect choice at the game or out with friends. And now, add gold to the great PBR tradition, because Pabst Blue Ribbon was awarded the gold medal for American-style lager at the 2016 Great American Beer Festival. That makes four gold medals for PBR in the last 11 years. Not bad. It's that gold medal taste that has made Pabst Blue Ribbon the Twin Cities' favorite. When you're this good, quality always comes through. Go for the gold. PBR me ASAP. This is Jeff O'Brien, attorney with the Loman Abdo Law Firm with a case in point sidebar. On May 11, 2016, the Defend Trade Secrets Act went into effect. The act extends the current Economic Espionage Act of 1996, which criminalizes trade secret thefts to the civil arena. This means for the first time, trade secret owners can now bring suit in federal district courts without having to resort to another basis for jurisdiction. While not without critics, the act is a major step forward in the protection of intellectual property in the United States, not least because federal law now fully recognizes four types of intellectual property, patents, copyrights, trademarks, and now trade secrets. Minnesota Statutes Chapter 325C also provides a civil cause of action in state court for the wrongful misappropriation of trade secrets. If your business has been victimized by the misappropriation of its confidential information, contact an attorney to determine if you have claims under either federal or state law. This is Jeff O'Brien, attorney with the Loman Abdo Law Firm, with a case in point sidebar. Well, now that I have the floor, I just have to point out your your pun game is not on point tonight with the uh, hopefully you don't swing and miss at my high spin fastball for the topic change. I wanted to cut in, but since we're on Skype, I was like, no, no, no. I'm just going to let that be for a minute, but I'm going to make this is like me catching the dog in the act and then sticking his nose in it. I'm, I'm sticking your nose in that pun for a second. Just let it linger. Dude, that was that was one of the top five puns in Touch 'em All history. That was a legendary segue in pun. Come on. It 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 I agree it was one of the top five in Touch 'em All history, which says much more about Touch 'em All history than it does <laughs> that particular pun. Joe Maurer, though, uh interesting you say that because in my lineup that I just kinda like made up out of whole cloth, and I think I I think I described this in the column, which was like this is a mix of of 
my thoughts plus my belief on lineup construction plus this vague notion that uh, that I've cultivated over a year, a couple of years of covering baseball, wherein managers and players kind of like normalcy. They don't like change very much. Not to say that they won't develop new lines of thinking, but that once they've developed that line, they kind of like to stay in that track. It's just baseball is routine oriented and yada, yada, yada. So it's kind of like a blend of all of those different things. But in my lineup versus right-handed pitching, I do have Joe Maurer leading off. I wrote in the column that something about him, he, you know, he's, he's overpaid. I get it. We, we can all agree on that point, but let's move past it and get to some actual analysis instead of just stomping off and, and huffing and puffing and pouting over his contract. Like that, that just eliminates all this extra analysis that we probably need uh, to do if we want to advance the conversation, advance the discussion. So I wrote that like the negativity and backlash has just gotten way out of hand. And that's, that's no truer in any case than when I put him at the top of a lineup because of his ridiculously high on-base percentage against righties, because on-base percentage is the primary factor that I have in leadoff hitters. And I think Derek Falvey is going to agree. Look at the Cleveland Indians who used slow-footed Carlos Santana in the leadoff spot uh, because he has a high on-base percentage. Wasn't Jose Batista batting leadoff for the Blue Jays for a while, too, at some point? Not all all of the year, but yeah, they did use a lineup in which it went uh, Batista, Tulowitzki, and Carnacion, I think. I want to say. I'd have to look it up, but like, that's not exactly traditional. Traditionally, you might have those guys hitting four, five, six, but baseball is sort of moving into this direction where, well, why should we give three worst hitters yeah. more plate appearances over the course of the year? And so for me, Joe Maurer deserves more plate appearances than anybody against right-handed pitching if the name of the game is to avoid outs. Nobody's going to do that better on a regular basis against right-handed pitching. Um, we can either uh, transition to my thoughts on Joe Maurer against lefties, or we should just go through the rest of my righty lineup. What do you want to do? Uh, give us your Joe Maurer lefty thoughts, and then give us your lefty and righty twins lineups. And then I will, okay, so and then I will tell you how how terrible the lineups are. And no, go right. ahead. And then you can rub my nose in it that way. I would appreciate that. Uh, my lefty lineup, I actually left Maurer out, kind of just to prove a point. Yeah. Like on op- on opening day, the Kansas City Royals are probably going to start Danny Duffy, nice lefty, and so I'd like to see some version of a lefty constructed lineup, not just. Well, it's opening day, and these are our guys, so here you go. But you know, because uh-huh. because baseball and because tradition, and that's the way we've always done it, that you're going to sacrifice one game with some some bad matchups because it's opening right. day. But let me flip that on its head. Baseball, please pay attention if you are still listening to this Touch em All podcast, because baseball, what happens if I took you to September 30th and said you are a half game out of the postseason and you're playing the team that you're trailing. Well, fancy that. All you have to do to get into the postseason is win this game. And then I told you, so that's a great opportunity, and you get to use your opening day starter, which is a nice advantage for you, but you won't get to use your best lineup against the other starting pitcher. You just get to use 
a lineup that you saw a lot this year because it's your regulars, it's your veterans. It yeah. doesn't matter who's hitting well. It doesn't matter who's injured. It doesn't matter who hits lefties well. It's just your lineup that was kind of your backbone, the, the, the guys who got you here. I think every baseball fan would say, no, that's BS. I want the best chance to win tonight because the postseason depends on this. And say what you want about having it be a six-month season and a grind to decide who gets into the postseason. With how tight we've seen some of the races the past three, four years, it would not be shocking at all to see a race come down to the final day of the season. And in my opinion, there's no difference about doing that tradition thing on opening day and doing it on the final day. One case, baseball yes. fans would think it's ridiculous because it's the final day and everything comes down to this. The other, if you flip it, the calendar, it's, well, this is just how baseball does it. It's opening day. Well, so, yes. anyways, that's, that's my soapbox on that. I think you should try to win every single game, whether it's in April or in October. And uh, by playing the matchups, you give yourself the best chance to do that on April 3rd. Well, the sheer number of games in baseball and the fact that it's a six-month season and you're, you're just playing all the time, it lulls you into a false sense of how much, how much time you have left in the hourglass. And, yeah. and sometimes we, we feel either – and by we, I mean everyone involved in baseball. The people who are implementing the strategy, the fans and the media, because the road is so long – we almost feel like optimal strategy isn't as important when the urgency is low. That once the urgency cranks up later in the season, then optimal strategy becomes more important. When in reality, if you're three games back in September, it, 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 your destiny wasn't, de wasn't determined automatically. You may have put out four or five suboptimal uh, bullpen matchups or, or starting lineups that cost you games. So yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I agree in principle. I agree with your logic, but I just have yes. a hard time believing that even against a, a tough lefty, like a Danny Duffy, that Joe Maurer, who was terrible against lefties, won't be in the starting lineup. You're just going to have, uh, yeah. if he's the same hitter as he was last year against the average lefty, and he's facing one of the best lefties in the American league, he's a black hole in your opening day lineup. Of course, the next layer to this is, does it matter? They're not going to contend anyways, but you don't want to go into a season feeling that way or even um, or even implementing strategy along that train of thought. So Right. Yeah. So I'll say this, and I think Maurer can play against lefties, but I wouldn't do it every time, and I would put him somewhere in the realm of being a part-time player this year, and I'd try to find most of the days to sit him against left-handed pitching. Now, that's so much easier said than done. And by putting him in the opening day lineup, I think it's just a nod to he is one of the Twins' best players still, no matter what you think about him. He continues to be one of their best hitters. And um, and there's going to be people that hear that line and are thinking, you're crazy, but I'm not crazy. Um, I put him out of this mostly to, mostly to prove a point, but I think I'd be shocked if Joe Maurer wasn't in the opening day lineup. With that being said, the lineup I have against lefties has roughly a 0% chance of being used by uh, Paul Molitor on opening day against probably Danny Duffy and the Kansas City Royals. But I had some fun with it, and I'll just read it off to you. And if there's anything that jumps out to you like, whoa, dude, you're crazy or stupid or both, uh, I want you to rub my nose in it. Uh, those 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 words to describe you aren't mutually exclusive with the lineup right. you're about to put out and what I think of Absolutely. it. But yes, go ahead. 
you could totally agree with it and then still think those other things. So I, I agree. Um, leading off on opening day, and this would be a great sign for the Twins and their fans and for one of their brightest young prospects in a long time, Byron Buxton's the leadoff hitter on opening day. Um, I'll just rattle through the rest of the lineup and uh, – Pick your nits where you need to. Hey, this is such uh, a small sample size and spring alert, so it's actually the yes. rare uh, 4S hashtag. He only right. has two strikeouts in six spring games so far, Byron Buxton, so he's he's making some contact at least. Amazing, yes. Uh, let's do a whole podcast on three games worth of spring training samples and, and, and see what conclusions to draw. <laughs> um after that, I've got Byron Buxton leading off, and then this is the this is where it all falls apart. It goes to hell in a handbasket quickly. Robbie Grossman batting second and DHing against the lefty. After that, Miguel Sano at third base, Brian Dozier at second base, Kenny Vargas first base, Jorge Polanco shortstop, right fielder Max Kepler, left fielder Eddie Rosario, and your backup catcher batting ninth on opening day, Chris Jimenez. Huh. Dude, you know, you know, I'm not going to argue you on the Robbie Grossman platoon conversation. I don't think he's an everyday starter, but I think he's a great platoon option with Eddie Rosario. It's a perfect fit. You get Eddie if if you platoon them straight up lefty versus righty starting pitchers. Robbie Grossman plays in one quarter of the games against his strength. He's better as a right-handed hitter. In fact, as a right-handed hitter, he's one of the best hitters on the team. If you just take mm-hmm. his numbers last year. So I'm not even going to fight you on that one. It might sound crazy nice. to most people, but I'm I'm pulling up uh, Robbie Grossman's splits just to prove this, and it's you know it's not the the largest sample. Although it is, you know what he does have over a thousand career uh, overall major league plate appearances against left-handed pitching. Robbie Grossman bats 289 with a 350 on base percentage and slugs well over 400. If, yep. if you extrapolate those numbers to a full season, we're looking at a guy who has 16 home runs, 70 RBIs for, for fans who like the back of the baseball card stats, and an OPS just under 700, or just under 800, I should say. So yep. I'm, I'm not going to fight you on that one. Yeah, well, it's pretty unlikely to happen, and a lot of people are going to see Robbie Grossman DHing in my lineup and think I'm crazy, but... He's not going to be the DH. I think Kenny Vargas is going to be the DH. And it just so happened that with Maurer out of the lineup, I could move Vargas to first. It gives me a little flexibility. I can put another bat in there anywhere I want to. And uh, Mahler has hinted that he's going to let guys like Max Kepler and Eddie Rosario take their lumps against lefties in hopes that they develop against them. Because if you just if you take Max Kepler, for example, and he didn't hit very well against lefties last year, and you just say, well... All right, so he can't hit lefties. I'm never going to let him face them. How would he ever get better at that? Sure. And then you're limiting this guy who I think will be a significant impact player for the Twins over the next five years, and you're limiting him to being a part-time guy uh, where he has to sit. Obviously, the Twins don't want to do that, and so I think you're going to see those guys play a lot. Um, same is true of Eddie Rosario, although I've certainly got my questions about him. But – Putting Grossman at DH and Vargas at first allows you to keep that speedy outfield that helps your pitchers. And uh, trust me, Irvin Santana is going to be mighty happy to see Rosario, Buxton, and Kepler uh, patrolling the outfield grass on opening day. Yeah, the Twins actually, if Trevor May makes the rotation and if Phil Hughes is healthy and in the starting rotation, Irvin Santana, a lot of fly balls, It, it probably going to be one of the more fly ball heavy pitching staffs 
in the American League, wouldn't you say? I haven't compared to all the other ones, but they're going to need outfield defense just with their fly ball starting staff. Yep, we've got to come up with a nickname for those three because it's pretty clear they're going to be the trio. And uh, I don't really view them all in the same. They're, they're, you know, their careers are all independent, but uh, they are sort of in the same bin of young prospects with some things left to prove in the majors after a really impressive minor league career. Um, all three of them should add value defensively in time. Kepler's maybe the most questionable about that, but but I, I still see it for Kepler. So anyway, uh, call to listeners and a call to you, Phil Mackey. Uh, we should come up with a nickname for that group. Um, sometime. I've got a picture posted on my Instagram with the three of them where we tried to come up with, uh, with a nickname like Lavelle's uh, Lavelle's old Soul Patrol for the Twins outfield of the past. Uh, we haven't come up with very many good ideas yet, so definitely open to some suggestions. I like yeah, I like the uh, I like the idea. Send them to us on Twitter at Derek Wetmore at Phil Mackey, or uh, hit us up on our our Facebook pages. You can just search us Derek Wetmore MLB Phil Mackey Radio. Give us your Twins lineup against right-handed pitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one would be Joe Maurer's leading off. So Love for it. all the bad things you want to say against him, uh, against lefties, my points from earlier stand that he is an OBP machine compared to the rest of Twins hitters. After that, this one's kind of controversial too, but I've got Byron Buxton batting second. Uh, there's going to be some people that take an argument with that because he doesn't make a lot of contact. But if his minor league stat line starts to catch up and becomes his major league stat line – I'm taking a 350 on-base percentage, roughly, and putting it in the number two hole. So that way I've got two on-base monsters batting in front of Miguel Sano and Brian Dozier and Kenny Vargas. You know uh, what? Could I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose this question just off the top of my head, and I'm not saying that it, it ruins your lineup, but here. is it possible that Joe Maurer batting in front of Byron Buxton would prevent Buxton from from tallying as many triples as he otherwise would? Possible. Now, let me flip that around on you, and this is just like baseball theory, and I could be wrong here, but I'm just thinking it through. How many more plate appearances would Maurer get throughout the course of the season against righties batting first than second? And does that difference in the percentage of times Maurer avoids an out, does that cancel out the effect of Byron Buxton extra base potential. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just looking at it from a math perspective that says Maurer gives the twins. If you're down a run in the ninth and you happen to be circling back up to the top of the order, I'd rather have Maurer up than Buxton because he's got a better percentage chance of getting on base, at least the way I'm looking at this. And that extends the game, that ex- or extends the inning, which in turn extends the game and gives the Twins the best chance to score. I'm just trying to give the best on-base threat the most play appearances throughout the season. Yeah, and to answer your question, assuming assuming that you're facing a right-handed pitcher 75% of the time, and, yeah. uh, and I believe the difference in if you played out a full season, the number one spot in the lineup, I think there's about a 15 to, to 20 or 25 plate appearance difference between each slot in the lineup. Right. So times 75%. And if he plays yeah. every day, which is not a guarantee with Joe Maurer, we're talking about maybe an extra 12 to 15 plate appearances compared to that number two slot for the full season. 
Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So not a huge difference. And then 12 plate appearances. And it's not like we're talking about a hundred percent getting on base versus 0%. So if it's 12 plate appearances and one guy's got a 380 OBP and the other guy's got a 350, you're talking a pretty minimal difference. And maybe you're talking me potentially into throwing bucks and back at the top on a full-time basis. You know what I've realized with all of the geek speak and break it down numbers and, and the nature of this particular episode, Derek? What's that? This is a very high spin twins podcast episode. Okay. That one's going to take me a second to recover from. I'll show myself out. Yes, please do. And I'll finish with my lineup. Um, <laughs> um, we got, so Joe Maurer, Byron Buxton, and then your run producers, Miguel Sano, Brian Dozier. I got Kenny's Vargas up there, which I could hear arguments against. Then Max Kepler, Jorge Polanco, Jason Castro, and Eddie Rosario. Okay. That's, uh, that's the lineup I think you're going to see the most often. I don't know if that's the order that Paul Molitor is going to pull him out of the hat, but I do think that those are the positions that are going to be your opening day starters, kind of like, like your regular guys that, uh, that are going to get the bulk of playing time at their respective position. All right, yeah. I, I really just I have no idea what to expect from this team. And I know that between now and the end of spring training – whether it's on this podcast or on the radio, people always want go on the record, right? You, if you got a microphone, you're supposed to go on the record, or if you have a pen or an article or a column, you're supposed to go on the record. And ordinarily, with any team in baseball, it's it's just really stupid and it's just sort of a fool's game to pick one win total and one win loss record when really it's you're you're dealing with a range of possibilities for each team. The range of possibilities for the Cubs goes up to 115 wins because of how loaded their roster is. Uh, the range of possibilities for the Twins might be one of the widest in baseball because I think they're capable of losing 95 with bad pitching. But I also think they're capable of sneaking up and, and having a couple young players blossom, Byron Buxton, and flirting with a wild card spot. So I just this, this is one of the, the, the only seasons I can remember where I'm just sort of excited to sit back and grab some popcorn and watch what happens over the next six months. Yes, uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's pitching, it's Byron Buxton, it's Max Kepler, it's Miguel Sano. And not to be too uh, alarmist, but like I've termed this the season of learning. Um, you could learn some things that would be pretty damning about the long-term future, you know, the three- to six-year future of the Twins. But on the flip side of that coin, if you could learn some positive things like – Oh, yeah, Trevor May could be a stud starting pitcher. Uh, oh, yeah, Jorge Polanco can play shortstop in the big leagues. Oh, yeah, Miguel Sano can be a positive asset in the field in addition to his big bat. Well, suddenly you've got some pretty nice pieces in place if you're the Twins. It's one of the reasons that over the last, like, whatever, two years we've been doing this podcast, even when I was pumping the brakes about, hey, 83 wins is nothing to throw a parade about. This team still hasn't made it. Um, there, there are still some things to figure out, and I got booze for that, and uh, I, I think that's where the nickname Derek Wet Blanket was invented. Um, <laughs> but even when that stuff was all going on, it's been this weird juxtaposition of the present is ugly and the future is possibly very bright. Like there, You mentioned there's a wide gap for sure, but the fact even that there is this possible upside in the immediate future and uh not to mention the the you know near-term future 2018 2019 
like that's a pretty good place to be. That's not exactly rebuilding. Um, and, and no team wants to go through rebuilding, but I was talking to one twins player the other day who was a part of the Astros when they were terrible. And, uh, and they were playing, he was talking about walk-off wins and he how many players on the twins roster were part of the Astros when they were terrible. Uh, let's see, Robbie Grossman, Jason Castro, JB Shuck. Okay. Um, so it could have been anyone. Okay. I was talking to JB Shuck and he said, <laughs> did you just conceal the identity of JB Shuck? <laughs> like, yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't important to the story. It's not like, it's not like I was playing it up. Like I've got big league sources telling me the Astros used to be bad. Um, but I do incidentally. And in this case, he was talking about walk-off wins and he was like, yeah. So it was a couple years ago and in Houston, we were playing the Cubs and, Somebody hit an oppo shot walk-off granny, I guess. And he said, uh, he like paused his story. And I said, well, hold on a second. Isn't it funny to think about that the Astros and the Cubs were terrible in the very recent past? And he said, trust me, I went through it. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. And now we're talking about the Astros as a, you know, who's going to be their first round matchup in the postseason and the Cubs, are they going to repeat the World Series? So, these things can turn around quickly if you have the prospects that have sort of bubbled up and are there and ready to thrive. And now to me, 2017 is a matter of answering those questions. Are those prospects ready to thrive in the big league? We've also, just to add some more optimism to uh, the end of this podcast, we've seen a lot of one-season turnarounds where a team stockpiles and stockpiles, and but while they're stockpiling, they're still losing 90 or they're losing 100. We've seen teams flip the switch in one year a lot recently, I feel like. The Orioles did it at one point a few years ago. The Cubs did it. Uh, obviously, the Astros did it. The Royals did it about four years ago, or they went. They were losing 90, 90, 90. Then it was like 88, and boom, all of a sudden they're competing for a playoff spot. Not guaranteeing that that happens with the Twins, but there's more hope for whatever reason that, that your team can do that now than, than seemingly 10 or 15 years ago. And maybe that's just a weird trend that's bound to, to go back into hiding. I don't know. Um, well, Derek, wet blanket here again. I still think the Twins are going to win between like 75 and 78 games this year. I think they're going to win between like 68 and 92 somewhere. Oh, okay. All right. I'll hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> hey, guys. It's Phil Mackey here. For all of you Twin Cities area listeners, to tell you about Luther Brookdale Toyota, 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard is the location. My family and I have been going to this car dealership and service department for three-plus decades, and there's a reason for that. It's the best in the business, the smartest and friendliest people in the business. They'll treat you like family. So find out why my family and I have been going to the same dealership and service department for multiple decades, right on the corner of 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard, LutherBrookdaleToyota.com.